Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. Last week, we should have read all the way through chapter 35, but accidentally cut that chapter out of the recording. But don't worry, we bring you chapter 35 today as part of our 13th installment. In addition to last week's chapter 35, this installment also includes chapters 36 through 40 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure that you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insights on aspects of the novel, and we are also sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this 13th installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 35 But next morning, at the first bend of the river shutting off the houses of Patizan, all this dropped out of my sight bodily, with its color, its design, and its meaning, like a picture created by fancy on a canvas, upon which, after long contemplation, you turn your back for the last time. It remains in the memory motionless, unfaded, with its life arrested in an unchanging light. There are the ambitions, the fears, the hate, the hopes, and they remain in my mind just as I had seen them, intense and as if forever suspended in their expression. I had turned away from the picture and was going back to the world where events move, men change, light flickers, life flows in a clear stream, no matter whether over mud or over stones. I wasn't going to dive into it. I would have enough to do to keep my head above the surface, but as to what I was leaving behind, I cannot imagine any alteration. The immense and magnanimous Doramin and his little motherly witch of a wife, gazing together upon the land and nursing secretly their dreams of parental ambition. Tunku Alang, wizened and greatly perplexed. Dane Waris, intelligent and brave, with his faith in Jim, with his firm glance and his ironic friendliness. The girl, absorbed in her frightened, suspicious adoration. Tam Itam, surly and faithful. Cornelius, leaning his forehead against the fence under the moonlight. I am certain of them. They exist as if under an enchanter's wand. But the figure round which all these are grouped, that one lives, and I am not certain of him. No magician's wand can immobilize him under my eyes. He is one of us. Jim, as I've told you, accompanied me on the first stage of my journey back to the world he had renounced, and the way at times seemed to lead through the very heart of untouched wilderness. The empty reaches sparkled under the high sun, between the high walls of vegetation the heat drowsed upon the water, and the boat, impelled vigorously, cut her way through the air that seemed to have settled dense and warm under the shelter of lofty trees. The shadow of the impending separation had already put an immense space between us, and when we spoke it was with an effort, as if to force our low voices across a vast and increasing distance. The boat fairly flew. We sweltered side by side in the stagnant, superheated air. The smell of mud, of mush, the primeval smell of fecund earth, seemed to sting our faces, 
till suddenly, at a bend, it was as if a great hand far away had lifted a heavy curtain, had flung open an immense portal. The light itself seemed to stir, the sky above our heads widened, a far-off murmur reached our ears, a freshness enveloped us, filled our lungs, quickened our thoughts, our blood, our regrets. And straight ahead, the forests sank down against the dark blue ridge of the sea. I breathed deeply. I reveled in the vastness of the opened horizon, in the different atmosphere that seemed to vibrate with the toil of life, with the energy of an impeccable world. This sky and this sea were open to me. The girl was right. There was a sign, a call in them, something to which I responded with every fiber of my being. I let my eyes roam through space like a man released from bonds who stretches his cramped limbs, runs, leaps, responds to the inspiring elation of freedom. This is glorious, I cried, and then I looked at the sinner by my side. He sat with his head sunk on his breast and said, Yes, without raising his eyes, as if afraid to see writ large on the clear sky of the offing the reproach of his romantic conscience. I remember the smallest details of that afternoon. We landed on a bit of white beach. It was backed by a low cliff wooded on the brow, draped in creepers to the very foot. Below us, the plain of the sea, of a serene and intense blue, stretched with a slight upward tilt to the thread-like horizon drawn at the height of our eyes. Great waves of glitter blew lightly along the pitted dark surface, as swift as feathers chased by the breeze. A chain of islands sat broken and massive facing the wide estuary, displayed in a sheet of pale glassy water reflecting faithfully the contour of the shore. High in the colorless sunshine, a solitary bird, all black, hovered, dropping and soaring above the same spot with a slight rocking motion of the wings. A ragged, sooty bunch of flimsy mat hovels was perched over its own inverted image, upon a crooked multitude of high piles the color of ebony. A tiny black canoe put off from amongst them with two tiny men, all black, who toiled exceedingly, striking down at the pale water, and the canoe seemed to slide painfully on a mirror. This bunch of miserable hovels was the fishing village that boasted of the white lord's especial protection, and the two men crossing over were the old headman and his son-in-law. They landed and walked up to us on the white sand, lean, dark brown, as if dried in smoke, with ashy patches on the skin of their naked shoulders and breasts. Their hands were bound in dirty but carefully folded handkerchiefs, and the old man began at once to state a complaint, voluble, stretching a lank arm, screwing up at Jim his old bleared eyes confidently. The Raja's people would not leave them alone. There had been some trouble about a lot of turtles' eggs his people had collected on the islets there, and leaning at arm's length upon his paddle, he pointed with a brown skinny hand over the sea. Jim listened for a time without looking up, and at last told him gently to wait. He would hear him by and by. They withdrew obediently to some little distance and sat on their heels, with their paddles lying before them on the sand. The silvery gleams in their eyes followed our movements patiently, and the immensity of the outspread sea, the stillness of the coast passing north and south beyond the limits of my vision, made up one colossal presence watching us four dwarfs isolated on a strip of glistening sand. "'The trouble is,' remarked Jim moodily, that for generations these beggars of fishermen in that village there had been considered as the Raja's personal slaves, and the old Rip can't get it into his head that... He paused. That you have changed all that, I said. Yes, I've changed all that, he muttered in a gloomy voice. 
You have had your opportunity, I pursued. Have I? he said. Well, yes, I suppose so. Yes, I have got back my confidence in myself. A good name. Yet sometimes I wish... No, I shall hold what I've got. Can't expect anything more. He flung his arm out towards the sea. Not out there, anyhow. He stamped his foot upon the sand. This is my limit, because nothing less will do. We continued pacing the beach. Yes, I've changed all that, he went on, with a sidelong glance at the two patient squatting fishermen. But only try to think what it would be if I went away. Jove! Can't you see it? Hell loose. No. Tomorrow I shall go and take my chance of drinking that silly old Tunkulalong's coffee, and I shall make no end of fuss over those rotten turtle's eggs. No, I can't say. Enough. Never. I must go on. Go on forever holding up my end, to feel sure that nothing can touch me. I must stick to their belief in me to feel safe, and to... to... He cast about for a word, seemed to look for it on the sea, to keep in touch with. His voice sank suddenly to a murmur, with those whom, perhaps, I shall never see any more, with, with you, for instance. I was profoundly humbled by his words. For God's sake, I said, don't set me up, my dear fellow, just look to yourself. I felt a gratitude and affection for that straggler whose eyes had singled me out, keeping my place in the ranks of an insignificant multitude. How little that was to boast of, after all. I turned my burning face away, under the low sun, glowing, darkened and crimson, like an ember snatched from the fire, the sea lay outspread, offering all its immense stillness to the approach of the fiery orb. Twice he was going to speak, but checked himself. At last, as if he had found a formula, I shall be faithful, he said quietly. I shall be faithful, he repeated, without looking at me but for the first time letting his eyes wander upon the waters, whose blueness had changed to a gloomy purple under the fires of the sunset. Ah, he was romantic, romantic. I recalled some words of Stein's. In the destructive element immerse, to follow the dream and again to follow the dream, and so, always, usque ad finem. He was romantic, but none the less true. Who could tell what forms, what visions, what faces, what forgiveness he could see in the glow of the west? A small boat, leaving the schooner, moved slowly with a regular beat of two oars towards the sandbank to take me off. And then there's Jewel, he said, out of the great silence of earth, sky, and sea, which had mastered my very thoughts so that his voice made me start. There's Jewel. Yes, I murmured. I need not tell you what she is to me, he pursued. You've seen. In time she will come to understand. I hope so, I interrupted. She trusts me, too, he mused, and then changed his tone. When shall we meet next, I wonder, he said. Never, unless you come out, I answered, avoiding his glance. He didn't seem to be surprised. He kept very quiet for a while. Goodbye, then he said, after a pause. Perhaps it's just as well. We shook hands and I walked to the boat, which waited with her nose on the beach. The schooner, her mainsail set and jib-sheet to the windward, curveted on the purple sea. There was a rosy tinge on her sails. "'Will you be going home again soon?' asked Jim, just as I swung my leg over the gunwale. "'In a year or so, if I live,' I said. 
The forefoot grated on the sand, the boat floated, the wet oars flashed and dipped once, twice. Jim, at the water's edge, raised his voice. Tell them, he began. I signed to the men to cease rowing and waited in wonder. Tell who? The half-submerged sun faced him. I could see its red gleam in his eyes that looked dumbly at me. No, nothing, he said, and with a slight wave of his hand motioned the boat away. I did not look again at the shore till I had clambered on board the schooner. By that time the sun had set. The twilight lay over the east, and the coast turned black, extended infinitely its somber wall that seemed the very stronghold of the night. The western horizon was one great blaze of gold and crimson, in which a big detached cloud floated dark and still, casting a slaty shadow on the water beneath, and I saw Jim on the beach, watching the schooner fall off and gather headway. The two half-naked fishermen had arisen as soon as I had gone. They were no doubt pouring the plaint of their trifling, miserable, oppressed lives into the ears of the white lord, and no doubt he was listening to it, making it his own, for was it not part of his luck, the luck from the word go, the luck to which he had assured me he was so completely equal? They, too, I should think, were in luck, and I was sure their pertinacity would be equal to it. Their dark-skinned bodies vanished on the dark background long before I had lost sight of their protector. He was white from head to foot, and remained persistently visible with the stronghold of the night at his back, the sea at his feet, the opportunity by his side, still veiled. What do you say? Was it still veiled? I don't know. For me, that white figure in the stillness of coast and sea seemed to stand at the heart of a vast enigma. The twilight was ebbing fast from the sky above his head. The strip of sand had sunk already under his feet. He himself appeared no bigger than a child. Then only a speck, a tiny white speck, that seemed to catch all the light left in a darkened world. And suddenly, I lost him. Chapter 36 With these words Marlowe had ended his narrative, and his audience had broken up forthwith under his abstract pensive gaze. Men drifted off the veranda in pairs or alone without loss of time, without offering a remark, as if the last image of that incomplete story, its incompleteness itself, and the very tone of the speaker had made discussion in vain and comment impossible. Each of them seemed to carry away his own impression, to carry it away with him like a secret. But there was only one man of all these listeners who was ever to hear the last word of the story. It came to him at home, more than two years later, and it came contained in a thick packet addressed in Marlowe's upright and angular handwriting. The privileged man opened the packet, looked in, then, laying it down, went to the window. His rooms were in the highest flat of a lofty building, and his glance could travel afar beyond the clear panes of glass, as though he were looking out of the lantern of a lighthouse. The slopes of the roofs glistened, the dark broken ridges succeeded each other without end like somber, uncrested waves, and from the depths of the town under his feet ascended a confused and unceasing mutter. The spires of churches, numerous, scattered, haphazard, uprose like beacons on a maze of shoals without a channel. The driving rain mingled with the falling dusk of a winter's evening, and the booming of a big clock on a tower, striking the hour, rolled past in voluminous, austere bursts of sound, with a shrill, vibrating cry at the core. He drew the heavy curtains. The light of his shaded reading lamp slept like a sheltered pool, 
His footfalls made no sound on the carpet. His wandering days were over. No more horizons as boundless as hope. No more twilights within the forests as solemn as temples. In the hot quest for the ever-undiscovered country over the hill, across the stream, beyond the wave. The hour was striking. No more. No more. But the opened packet under the lamp brought back the sounds, the visions, the very savor of the past. A multitude of fading faces, a tumult of low voices, dying away upon the shores of distant seas under a passionate and unconsoling sunshine. He sighed and sat down to read. At first he saw three distinct enclosures, a good many pages closely blackened and pinned together, a loose square sheet of grayish paper with a few words, traced in a handwriting he had never seen before, and an explanatory letter from Marlowe. From this last fell another letter, yellowed by time and frayed on the folds. He picked it up, and, laying it aside, turned to Marlowe's message, ran swiftly over the opening lines, and, checking himself, thereafter read on deliberately. He picked it up, and, laying it aside, turned to Marlowe's message, ran swiftly over the opening lines, and, checking himself, thereafter read on deliberately, like one approaching with slow feet and alert eyes the glimpse of an undiscovered country. I don't suppose you've forgotten, went on the letter. You alone have showed an interest in him that survived the telling of his story, though I remember well you would not admit he had mastered his fate. You prophesied for him the disaster of weariness and of disgust with acquired honor, with the self-appointed task, with the love sprung from pity and youth. You had said you knew so well that kind of thing. It's illusory satisfaction. It's unavoidable deception. You said also, I call to mind, that giving your life up to them, them meaning all of mankind with skins brown, yellow, or black in color, was like selling your soul to a brute. You contended that that kind of thing was only endurable and enduring when based on a firm conviction in the truth of ideas racially our own, in whose name are established the order, the morality of an ethical progress. We wanted strength at our backs, you had said. We want a belief in its necessity and its justice, to make a worthy and conscious sacrifice of our lives. Without it, the sacrifice is only forgetfulness. The way of offering is no better than the way to perdition. In other words, you maintained that we must fight in the ranks or our lives don't count. Possibly. You ought to know, be it said without malice, you who have rushed into one or two places single-handed and came out cleverly, without singeing your wings. The point, however, is that of all mankind Jim had no dealings but with himself, and the question is whether at the last he had not confessed to a faith mightier than the laws of order and progress. I affirm nothing. Perhaps you may pronounce, after you've read. There is much truth, after all, in the common expression, under a cloud. It is impossible to see him clearly, especially as it is through the eyes of others that we take our last look at him. I have no hesitation in imparting to you all I know of that last episode that, as he used to say, had come to him. One wonders whether this was perhaps that supreme opportunity, that last and satisfying test for which I had always suspected him to be waiting, before he could frame a message to the impeccable world. You remember that when I was leaving him for the last time, he had asked whether I would be going home soon, and suddenly cried after me, Tell them. I had waited, curious, I'll own, and hopeful, too, only to hear him shout, 
No, nothing. That was all, then, and there will be nothing more. There will be no message, unless such of each of us can interpret for himself from the language of facts, that are so often more enigmatic than the craftiest arrangement of words. He made, it is true, one more attempt to deliver himself, but that too failed, as you may perceive if you look at the sheet of grayish foolscap enclosed here. He had tried to write. Do you notice the commonplace hand? It is headed, The Fort, Patisan. I suppose he had carried out his intention of making out of his house a place of defense. It was an excellent plan, a deep ditch, an earth wall topped by a palisade, and at the angles guns mounted on platforms to sweep each side of the square. Dorman had agreed to furnish him the guns, and so each man of his party would know there was a place of safety, upon which every faithful partisan could rally in case of some sudden danger. All this showed his judicious foresight, his faith in the future, what he called my own people, the liberated captives of the Sharif, were to make a distinct quarter of Patizan, with their huts and little plots of ground under the walls of the stronghold. Within he would be an invincible host in himself, the fort, Patizan. No date, as you observe. What is a number and a name to the day of days? It is also impossible to say whom he had in his mind when he seized the pen. Stein, myself, the world at large. Or was this only the aimless, startled cry of a solitary man confronted by his fate? An awful thing has happened, he wrote before he flung the pen down for the last time. Look at the ink blot resembling the head of an arrow under these words. After a while, he had tried again, scrolling heavily, as if with a head of lead, another line. I must now at once. The pen had spluttered, and that time he gave it up. There's nothing more. He had seen a broad gulf that neither eye nor voice could span. I can understand this. He was overwhelmed by the inexplicable, he was overwhelmed by his own personality, the gift of that destiny which he had done his best to master. I send you also an old letter, a very old letter. It was found carefully preserved in his writing case. It is from his father, and by the date you can see he must have received it a few days before he joined the Patna. Thus it must be the last letter he ever had from home. He had treasured it all these years. The good old parson fancied his sailor son. I've looked in at a sentence here and there. There is nothing in it except just affection. He tells his dear James that the last long letter from him was very honest and entertaining. He would not have him judge men harshly or hastily. There are four pages of it, easy morality and family news. Tom had taken orders. Carrie's husband had money losses. The old chap goes on equably trusting Providence and the established order of the universe, but alive to its small dangers and its small mercies. One can almost see him, gray-haired and serene in the inviolable shelter of his book-lined, faded, and comfortable study, where for forty years he had conscientiously gone over and over again the round of his little thoughts about faith and virtue, about the conduct of life and the only proper manner of dying, where he had written so many sermons, where he sits talking to his boy over there on the other side of the earth. But what of the distance? Virtue is one all over the world, and there is only one faith, one conceivable conduct of life, one manner of dying. He hopes his dear James will never forget that who once gives way to temptation in the very instant hazards his total depravity and everlasting ruin, therefore resolve fixedly never, through any possible motives, to do anything which you believe to be wrong. 
There is also some news of a favorite dog, and a pony, which all you boys used to ride, had gone blind from old age and had to be shot. The old chap invokes heaven's blessing. The mother and the, all the girls then at home send their love. No, there is nothing much in that yellow frayed letter fluttering out of his cherishing grasp after so many years. It was never answered, but who can say what converse he may have held with all these placid, colorless forms of men and women, peopling that quiet corner of the world as free of danger or strife as a tomb, and breathing equably the air of undisturbed rectitude. It seems amazing that he should belong to it, he to whom so many things had come. Nothing ever came to them. They would never be taken unawares, and never be called upon to grapple with fate. Here they all are, evoked by the mild gossip of the father, all these brothers and sisters, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, gazing with clear, unconscious eyes. While I seem to see him, returned at last, no longer a mere white speck at the heart of an immense mystery, but a full stature, standing disregarded amongst their untroubled shapes, with a stern and romantic aspect, but always mute, dark, under a cloud. The story of the last events you will find in the few pages enclosed here. You must admit that it is romantic beyond the wildest dreams of his boyhood, and yet there is to my mind a sort of profound and terrifying logic in it, as if it were our imagination alone that could set loose upon us the might of an overwhelming destiny. The imprudence of our thoughts recoils upon our heads. Who toys with the sword shall perish by the sword. This astounding adventure, of which the most astounding part is that it is true, comes on as an unavoidable consequence. Something of the sort had to happen. You repeat this to yourself while you marvel that such a thing could happen in the year of grace before last. But it has happened, and there is no disputing its logic. I put it down here for you as though I had been an eyewitness. My information was fragmentary, but I fitted the pieces together, and there is enough of them to make an intelligible picture. I wonder how he would have related it himself. He has confided so much in me that at times it seems as though he must come in presently and tell the story in his own words, in his careless yet feeling voice, with his offhand manner, a little puzzled, a little bothered, a little hurt, but now and then by a word or a phrase giving one of these glimpses of his very own self that were never any good for purposes of orientation. It's difficult to believe he will never come. I shall never hear his voice again, nor shall I see his smooth tan and pink face with a white line on the forehead and the youthful eyes darkened by excitement to a profound, unfathomable blue. Chapter 37 It all begins with a remarkable exploit of a man called Brown, who stole with complete success a Spanish schooner out of a small bay near Zamboanga. Till I discovered the fellow, my information was incomplete, but most unexpectedly I did come upon him a few hours before he gave up his arrogant ghost. Fortunately, he was willing and able to talk between the choking fits of asthma, and his racked body writhed with malicious exultation at the bare thought of Jim. He exulted thus at the idea that he had paid out the stuck-up beggar after all. He gloated over his action. I had to bear the sunken glare of his fierce crow-footed eyes if I wanted to know, and so I bore it reflecting how much certain forms of evil are akin to madness, derived from intense egoism, inflamed by resistance, tearing the soul to pieces and giving factitious vigor to the body. 
The story also reveals unsuspected depths of cunning in the wretched Cornelius, whose abject and intense hate acts like a subtle inspiration, pointing out an unerring way towards revenge. I could see directly I set my eyes on him what sort of a fool he was, gasped the dying Brown. He a man. Hell, he was a hollow sham. As if he couldn't have said straight out, hands off my plunder. Blast him. That would have been like a man, rot his superior soul. He had me there, but he hadn't devil enough in him to make an end of me. Not he. A thing like that letting me off as if I wasn't worth a kick. Brown struggled desperately for breath. Fraud letting me off, and so I did make an end of him after all. He choked again. I expect this thing'll kill me, but I shall die easy now. You, you here, I don't know your name. I would give you a five-pound note if, if I had it, for the news, or my name's not Brown. He grinned horribly. Gentleman Brown. He said all these things in profound gasps, staring at me with his yellow eyes out of a long, ravaged brown face. He jerked his left arm, a pepper-and-salt matted beard hung almost into his lap. A dirty, ragged blanket covered his legs. I had found him out in Bangkok through the busy buddy Schomburg, the hotel keeper, who had, confidently, directed me where to look. It appears that a sort of loafing, fuddled vagabond, a white man living amongst the natives with a Siamese woman, had considered it a great privilege to give a shelter to the last days of the famous gentleman Brown. While he was talking to me in the wretched hovel, and, as it were, fighting for every minute of his life, the Siamese woman, with big bare legs and a stupid coarse face, sat in a dark corner chewing beetles stolidly. Now and then she would get up for the purpose of shooing a chicken away from the door. The whole hut shook when she walked. An ugly yellow child, naked and pot-bellied like a little heathen god, stood at the foot of the couch, finger in mouth, lost in a profound and calm contemplation of the dying man. He talked feverishly, but in the middle of a word, perhaps, an invisible hand would take him by the throat, and he would look at me dumbly with an expression of doubt and anguish. He seemed to fear that I would get tired of waiting and go away, leaving him with his tale untold, with his exultation unexpressed. He died during the night, I believe, but by that time I had nothing more to learn. So much as to Brown, for the present. Eight months before this, coming into Samarang, I went as usual to see Stein. On the garden side of the house a Malay on the veranda greeted me shyly, and I remembered that I had seen him in Patisan, in Jim's house, amongst other budgis men who used to come in the evening to talk interminably over their war reminiscences and to discuss state affairs. Jim had pointed him out to me once as a respectable, petty trader, owning a small, sea-going native craft, who had showed himself one of the best at the taking of the stockade. I was not very surprised to see him, since any Patisan trader venturing as far as Samarang would naturally find his way to Stein's house. I returned his greeting and passed on. At the door of Stein's room I came upon another Malay, in whom I recognized Tamatam. I asked him at once what he was doing there. It occurred to me that Jim might have come on a visit. I own I was pleased and excited at the thought. Tamatam looked at me as if he did not know what to say. Is Tu and Jim inside? I asked impatiently. No, he mumbled, hanging his head for a moment, and then with sudden earnestness. He would not fight. He would not fight. He repeated twice. As he seemed unable to say anything else, I pushed him aside and went in. Stein, tall and stooping, stood alone in the middle of the room between the rows of butterfly cases. 
"'Ah, is it you, my friend?' he said sadly, peering through his glasses. A drab sack coat of alpaca hung unbuttoned down to his knees. He had a Panama hat on his head, and there were deep furrows on his pale cheeks. "'What's the matter now?' I asked nervously. "'There's Tamatam in there.' "'Come and see the girl. Come and see the girl. She is here,' he said, with a half-hearted show of activity. I tried to detain him, but with gentle obstinacy, he would take no notice of my eager questions. "'She is here. She is here,' he repeated in great perturbation. "'They came here two days ago. An old man like me, a stranger. Zianzi cannot do much. Come this way. Young hearts are unforgiving.' I could see he was in utmost distress. The strength of life in them, the cruel strength of life, he mumbled, leaving me round the house. I followed him, lost in dismal and angry conjectures. At the door of the drawing-room he barred my way. He loved her very much, he said interrogatively, and I only nodded, feeling so bitterly disappointed that I would not trust myself to speak. Very frightful, he murmured. She can't understand me. I am only a strange old man. Perhaps you, she knows you, talk to her. We can't leave it like this. Tell her to forgive him. It was very frightful. No doubt, exasperated at being in the dark. But have you forgiven him? He looked at me queerly. You shall hear, he said, and opening the door absolutely pushed me in. You know Stein's big house and the two immense reception rooms, uninhabited and uninhabitable, clean, full of solitude, and of shining things that look as if never beheld by the eye of man. They are cool on the hottest days, and you enter them as you would a scrubbed cave underground. I passed through one, and in the other I saw the girl sitting at the end of a big mahogany table, on which she rested her head, the face hidden in her arms. The waxed floor reflected her dimly as though it had been a sheet of frozen water. The rattan screens were down, and through the strange greenish gloom made by the foliage of the trees outside, a strong wind blew in gusts, swaying the long draperies of windows and doorways. Her white figure seemed shaped in snow. The pendant crystals of a great chandelier clicked above her head like glittering icicles. She looked up and watched my approach. I was chilled as if these vast apartments had been the cold abode of despair. She recognized me at once, and as soon as I had stopped, looking down at her. "'He has left me,' she said quietly. "'You always leave us, for your own ends.' Her face was set. All the heat of life seemed withdrawn within some inaccessible spot in her breast. "'It would have been easy to die with him,' she went on, and made a slight weary gesture as if giving up the incomprehensible. "'He would not. It was like a blindness.' And yet it was I who was speaking to him, it was I who stood before his eyes, it was at me that he looked all the time. Ah, you are hard, treacherous, without truth, without compassion. What makes you so wicked? Or is it that you are all mad? I took her hand, it did not respond, and when I dropped it, it hung down on the floor. That indifference, more awful than tears, cries and reproaches, seemed to defy time and consolation. You felt that nothing you could say would reach the seat of the still and benumbing pain. Stein had said, You shall hear. I did hear. I heard it all, listening with amazement, with awe, to the tones of her inflexible weariness. She could not grasp the real sense of what she was telling me, and her resentment filled me with a pity for her, for him, too. 
I stood rooted to the spot after she had finished. Leaning on her arm, she stared with hard eyes, and the wind passed in gusts. The crystals kept on clinking in the greenish gloom. The crystals kept on clicking in the greenish gloom. She went on whispering to herself, and yet he was looking at me. He could see my face, hear my voice, hear my grief, when I used to sit at his feet with my cheek against his knee and his hand on my head. The curse of cruelty and madness was already within him, waiting for the day. The day came, and before the sun had set, he could not see me any more. He was made blind and deaf without pity, as you all are. He shall have no tears from me. Never, never, not one tear, I will not. He went away from me as if I had been worse than death. He fled as if driven by some accursed thing he had heard or seen in his sleep. Her steady eyes seemed to strain after the shape of a man torn out of her arms by the strength of a dream. She made no sign to my silent bow. I was glad to escape. I saw her once again, the same afternoon. On leaving her I had gone in search of Stein, whom I could not find indoors, and I wandered out, pursued by distressful thoughts, into the gardens, those famous gardens of Stein, in which you can find every plant and tree of tropical lowlands. I followed the course of the canalized stream, and sat for a long time on a shaded beach near the ornamental pond, where some waterfowl with clipped wings were diving and splashing noisily. The branches of casuarina trees behind me swayed lightly, incessantly, reminding me of the soughing of fir trees at home. This mournful and restless sound was a fit accompaniment to my meditations. She had said he had been driven away from her by a dream, and there was no answer one could make her. There seemed to be no forgiveness for such a transgression. And yet is not mankind itself, pushing on its blind way, driven by a dream of its greatness and its power upon the dark paths of excessive cruelty and of excessive devotion? And what is the pursuit of truth, after all? When I rose to get back to the house, I caught sight of Stein's drab coat through a gap in the foliage, and very soon, at a turn of the path, I came upon him walking with the girl. Her little hand rested on his forearm, and under the broad, flat rim of his Panama hat he bent over her, gray-haired, paternal, with compassionate and chivalrous deference. I stood aside, but they stopped, facing me. His gaze was bent on the ground at his feet. The girl, erect and slight on his arm, stared somberly beyond my shoulder with black, clear, motionless eyes. Schrecklich, he murmured. Terrible, terrible. What can one do? He seemed to be appealing to me, but her youth, the length of the days suspended over her head, appealed to me more. And suddenly, even as I realized that nothing could be said, I found myself pleading his cause for her sake. You must forgive him, I concluded, and my own voice seemed to me muffled, lost in an irresponsive deaf immensity. We all want to be forgiven, I added after a while. What have I done? she asked with her lips only. You always mistrusted him, I said. He was like the others, she pronounced slowly. Not like the others, I protested, but she continued evenly, without any feeling. He was false. And suddenly Stein broke in. No, 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 my poor child. He patted her hand lying passively on his sleeve. No, no, not false. True, true, true. He tried to look into her stony face. You don't understand. Ah, why don't you understand? Terrible, he said to me. Some day she shall understand. Will you explain? I asked, looking hard at him. They moved on. 
I watched them. Her gown trailed on the path, her black hair fell loose. She walked upright and light by the side of the tall man, whose long, shapeless coat hung in perpendicular folds from the stooping shoulders, whose feet moved slowly. They disappeared beyond that spinney, you may remember, where sixteen different kinds of bamboo grow together, all distinguishable to the learned eye. For my part, I was fascinated by the exquisite grace and beauty of that fluted grove, crowned with pointed leaves and feathery heads, the lightness, the vigor, the charm, as distinctive voice of that unperplexed, luxuriating life. I remember staying to look at it for a long time, as one would linger within reach of a consoling whisper. The sky was pearly gray. It was one of those overcast days, so rare in the tropics, in which memories crowd upon one, memories of other shores, of other faces. I drove back to town that same afternoon, taking with me Tamatam and the other Malay, in whose seagoing craft they had escaped in the bewilderment, fear, and gloom of the disaster. The shock of it seemed to have changed their natures. It had turned her passion into stone, and it made the surly, taciturn Tamatam almost loquacious. His surliness, too, was subdued into puzzled humility, as though he had seen the failure of a potent charm in a supreme moment. The budgist trader, a shy, hesitating man, was very clear in the little he had to say. Both were evidently overawed by a sense of deep, inexpressible wonder, by the touch of an inscrutable mystery. There, with Marlowe's signature, the letter proper ended. The privileged reader screwed up his lamp, and solitary above the billowy roofs of the town like a lighthouse keeper above the sea, he turned to the pages of the story. Chapter 38 It all begins, as I've told you, with the man called Brown, ran the opening sentence of Marlowe's narrative. You who have knocked about the Western Pacific must have heard of him. He was the show ruffian on the Australian coast. Not that he was often to be seen there, but because he was always trotted out in the stories of lawless life a visitor from home is treated to, and the mildest of these stories which were told about him from the Cape York to Eden Bay was more than enough to hang a man if told in the right place. They never failed to let you know, too, that he was supposed to be the son of a baronet. Be it as it may, it is certain that he had deserted from a home ship in the early gold-digging days, and in a few years became talked about as the terror of this or that group of islands in Polynesia. He would kidnap natives, he would strip some lonely white trader to the very pajamas he stood in, and after he had robbed the poor devil, he would as likely as not invite him to fight a duel with shotguns on the beach. Which would have been fair enough as these things go, if the other man hadn't been by that time already half-dead with fright. Brown was a latter-day buccaneer, sorry enough, like his more celebrated prototypes. But what distinguished him from his contemporary brother ruffians, like Bully Hayes or the mellifluous Pease, or that perfumed, dundreary, whiskered, dandified scoundrel known as Dirty Dick, was an arrogant temper of his misdeeds and a vehement scorn for mankind at large, and for his victims in particular. The others were merely vulgar and greedy brutes, but he seemed moved by some complex intention. He would rob a man as if only to demonstrate his poor opinion of the creature, and he would bring to the shooting or maiming of some quiet, unoffending stranger a savage and vengeful earnestness, fit to terrify the most reckless of desperadoes. In the days of his greatest glory he owned an armed bark, manned by a mixed crew of Kanakas and runaway whalers, and boasted, 
I don't know with what truth, of being financed on the quiet by a most respectable firm of copra merchants. Later on he ran off, it was reported, with the wife of a missionary, a very young girl from Clapham Way, who had married the mild, flat-footed fellow in a moment of enthusiasm, and suddenly transplanted to Melanesia, lost her bearings somehow. It was a dark story. She was ill at the time he carried her off, and died on board his ship. It is said, as the most wonderful part of the tale, that over her body he gave way to an outburst of somber and violent grief. His luck left him, too, very soon after. He lost his ship on some rocks off Maleta, and disappeared for a time as though he had gone down with her. He is heard of next at Nukahiva, where he bought an old French schooner out of government service. What creditable enterprise he might have had in view when he made that purchase, I can't say, but it is evident that what with high commissioners, consuls, men of war, and international control, the South Seas were getting too hot to hold gentlemen of his kidney. Clearly, he must have shifted the scene of his operations farther west, because a year later he plays an incredibly audacious, but not a very profitable part, in a serio-comic business in Manila Bay, in which a peculating governor and an absconding treasurer are the principal figures. Thereafter, he seems to have hung around the Philippines in his rotten schooner, battling with an adverse fortune, till at last, running his appointed course, he sails into Jim's history, a blind accomplice of the dark powers. His tale goes that when a Spanish patrol cutter captured him, he was simply trying to run a few guns for the insurgents. If so, then I can't understand what he was doing off the south coast of Mindanao. My belief, however, is that he was blackmailing the native villages along the coast. The principal thing is that the cutter, throwing a guard on board, made him sail in company towards Zamboanga. On the way, for some reason or other, both vessels had to call at one of the new Spanish settlements, which never came to anything in the end, where there was not only a civil official in charge on shore, but a good stout coasting schooner lying at anchor in the little bay. And this craft, in every way much better than his own, Brown made up his mind to steal. He was down on his luck, as he told me himself. The world he had bullied for twenty years with fierce, aggressive disdain had yielded him nothing in the way of material advantage except a small bag of silver dollars, which was concealed in his cabin so that the devil himself couldn't smell it out. And that was all, absolutely all. He was tired of his life and not afraid of death. But this man, who would stake his existence on a whim with a bitter and jeering recklessness, stood in mortal fear of imprisonment. He had an unreasoning cold sweat, nerve-shaking, blood-to-water-turning sort of horror at the bare possibility of being locked up, the sort of terror a superstitious man would feel at the thought of being embraced by a spectre. Therefore, the civil official who came on board to make a preliminary investigation into the capture investigated arduously all day long, and only went ashore after dark, muffled up in a cloak and taking great care not to let Brown's little all clink in its bag. Afterwards, being a man of his word, he contrived, the very next evening, I believe, to send off the government cutter on some urgent bit of special service. As her commander could not spare a prize crew, he contented himself by taking away before he left all the sails of Brown's schooner to the very last rag, and took good care to tow his two boats onto the beach a couple of miles off. But in Brown's crew there was a Solomon Islander, kidnapped in his youth and devoted to Brown, who was the best man of the whole gang. That fellow swam off to the coaster, five hundred yards or so, with the end of a warp made up of all the running gear unrove for the purpose, 
The water was smooth, and the bay dark, like the inside of a cow, as Brown described it. The Solomon Islander clambered over the bulwarks with the end of a rope in his teeth. The crew of the coaster, all Tagals, were ashore having a jollification in the native village. The two shipkeepers left on board woke up suddenly and saw the devil. He had glittering eyes and leaped quick as lightning about the deck. They fell on their knees, paralyzed with fear, crossing themselves and mumbling prayers. With a long knife he found in the caboose the Solomon Islander, without interrupting their orisons, stabbed first one, then the other. With the same knife he set to sawing patiently at the coir cables till suddenly it parted under the blade with a splash. Then in the silence of the bay he let out a cautious shout, and Brown's gang, who meantime had been peering and straining their hopeful ears in the darkness, began to pull gently at their end of the warp. In less than five minutes the two schooners came together with a slight shock and a creak of spars. Brown's crowd transferred themselves without losing an instant, taking with them the firearms and a large supply of ammunition. They were sixteen in all, two runaway blue jackets, a lanky deserter from a Yankee man-of-war, a couple of simple blonde Scandinavians, a mulatto of sorts, one bland Chinaman who cooked, and the rest of the nondescript spawn of the South Seas. None of them cared and Brown, indifferent to gallows, was running away from the specter of a Spanish prison. He didn't give them the time to trans-ship enough provisions. The weather was calm, the air was charged with dew, and when they cast off the ropes and set sail to a faint offshore draft, there was no flutter in the damp canvas. Their old schooner seemed to detach itself gently from the stolen craft and slip away silently, together with the black mass of the coast, into the night. They got clear away, Brown related to me in detail their passage down the Straits of Macassar. It is a harrowing and desperate story. They were short of food and water. They boarded several native craft and got a little from each. With a stolen ship, Brown did not dare put into any port, of course. He had no money to buy anything, no papers to show, and no lie plausible enough to get him out again. An Arab bark, under the Dutch flag, surprised one night at anchor off Pulo Laut, yielded a little dirty rice, a bunch of bananas, and a cask of water. Three days of squally, misty weather from the northeast shot the schooner across the Java Sea. The yellow, muddy waves drenched the collection of hungry ruffians. They sighted mailboats moving on their appointed routes, past well-found home ships with rusty iron sides anchored in the shallow sea, waiting for a change of weather or the turn of the tide. An English gunboat, white and trim, with two slim masts, crossed their bows one day in the distance, and on another occasion a Dutch corvette, black and heavily sparred, loomed up on their quarter, steaming dead slow in the mist. They slipped through unseen or disregarded, a wan, sallow-faced band of utter outcasts, enraged with hunger and hunted by fear. Brown's idea was to make for Madagascar, where he expected, on grounds not altogether illusory, to sell the schooner in Tamatav, and no questions asked, or perhaps obtained some more or less forged papers for her. Yet before he could face the long passage across the Indian Ocean, food was wanted, water too. Perhaps he had heard of Patisan, or perhaps he just only happened to see the name written in small letters on the chart, probably that of a largish village up a river in a native state, perfectly defenseless, far from the beaten tracks of the sea and from the ends of submarine cables. He had done that kind of thing before, in the way of business, and this now was an absolute necessity, a question of life and death, or rather of liberty. Of liberty. He was sure to get provisions. Bullocks. Rice. Sweet potatoes. The sorry gang licked their chops. 
A cargo of produce for the schooner perhaps could be extorted, and who knows, some real ringing coined money. Some of these chiefs and village headmen can be made to part freely. He told me he would have roasted their toes rather than be balked. I believed him. His men believed him, too. They didn't cheer aloud, being a dumb pack, but made ready wolfishly. Luck served him as to weather. A few days of calm would have brought unmentionable horrors on board that schooner, but with the help of land and sea breezes, in less than a week after clearing the Sunda Straits, he anchored off the Batu Kring mouth within a pistol shot of the fishing village. Fourteen of them packed into the schooner's longboat, which was big having been used for cargo work, and started up the river, while two remained in charge of the schooner with food enough to keep starvation off for ten days. The tide and wind helped, and early one afternoon the big white boat under a ragged sail shouldered its way before the sea breeze into Patizan Reach, manned by fourteen assorted scarecrows glaring hungrily ahead and fingering the breached blocks of cheap rifles. Brown calculated upon the terrifying surprise of his appearance. They sailed in with the last of the flood. The Raja's stockade gave no sign. The first houses on both sides of the stream seemed deserted. A few canoes were seen up the reach in full flight. Brown was astonished at the size of the place. A profound silence reigned. The wind dropped between the houses. Two oars were got out and the boat held on upstream, the idea being to effect a lodgment in the center of the town before the inhabitants could think of resistance. It seems, however, that the headman of the village at Batu Kring had managed to send off a timely warning. When the longboat came abreast of the mosque, which Doraman had built, a structure with gables and roof finials of carved coral, the open space before it was full of people. A shout went up and was followed by a clash of gongs all up the river. From a point above, two little brass six-pounders were discharged, and the round shot came skipping down the empty reach, spurting glittering jets of water in the sunshine. In front of the mosque, a shouting lot of men began firing in volleys that whipped athwart the current of the river, and a regular rolling fusillade was opened on the boat from both banks, and Brown's men replied with a wild, rapid fire. The oars had been got in. The turn of the tide at high water comes on very quickly in that river, and the boat in midstream, nearly hidden in smoke, began to drift back stern foremost. Along both shores the smoke thickened also, lying below the roofs in a level streak as you may see a long cloud cutting the slope of a mountain. A tumult of war cries, the vibrating clang of gongs, the deep snoring of drums, yells of rage, crashes of volley firing, made an awful din, in which Brown sat confounded but steady at the tiller, working himself into a fury of hate and rage against these people who dared to defend themselves. Two of his men had been wounded, and he saw his retreat cut off below the town by some boats that had put off from Tukuolong's stockade. There were six of them, full of men. While he was thus beset, he perceived the entrance of the narrow creek, the same which Jim had jumped at low water. It was then brim full. Steering the longboat in, they landed, and, to make a long story short, they established themselves on a little knoll about nine hundred yards from the stockade, which, in fact, they commanded from that position. The slopes of the knoll were bare, but there were a few trees on the summit. They went to work cutting these down for a breastwork, and were fairly entrenched before dark. Meantime, the Raja's boats remained in the river with curious neutrality. 
When the sun set, the glue of the many brushwood blazes lighted on the river front and between the double line of houses on the land side threw into black reliefs the roofs, the groups of slender palms, the heavy clumps of fruit trees. Brown ordered the grass round his position to be fired. A low ring of thin flames under the slow ascending smoke wriggled rapidly down the slopes of a knoll, here and there a dry bush caught with a tall, vicious roar. The conflagration made a clear zone of fire for the rifles of the small party, and expired smoldering on the edge of the forests and along the muddy bank of the creek. A strip of jungle luxuriating in a damp hollow between the knoll and the Raja's stockade stopped it on that side with a great crackling and detonations of bursting bamboo stems. The sky was somber, velvety, and swarming with stars. The blackened ground smoked quietly with low, creeping wisps, till a little breeze came on and blew everything away. Brown expected an attack to be delivered as soon as the tide had flowed enough again to enable the war boats, which had cut off his retreat, to enter the creek. At any rate, he was sure there would be an attempt to carry off his longboat, which lay below the hill, a dark high lump of the feeble sheen of a wet mudflat. But no move of any sort was made by the boats in the river. Over the stockade and the Raja's buildings, Brown saw their lights on the water. They seemed to be anchored across the stream. Other lights afloat were moving in the reach, crossing and recrossing from side to side. There were also lights twinkling motionless upon the long walls of houses up the reach, as far as the bend and more still beyond, others isolated inland. The loom of the big fires disclosed buildings, roofs, black piles as far as he could see. It was an immense place. The fourteen desperate invaders lying flat behind the felled trees raised their chins to look over at the stir of that town that seemed to extend upriver for miles and swarm with thousands of angry men. They did not speak to each other. Now and then they would hear a loud yell or a single shot rang out, fired very far somewhere. But round their position everything was still, dark, silent. They seemed to be forgotten, as if the excitement keeping awake all the population had nothing to do with them, as if they had been dead already. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hi Lauren, welcome back. Hi Anne, I am so glad to be here. What kind of article do you have for us today? So, this is our last article, isn't it? It is. I think we have a special treat planned for next week. Um, yeah, and I am really, really excited about this article as our last article, and I, I'm just delighted by this one. I'm super excited about it, and I, I know how nerdy that sounds, and I'm okay with it. <laughs> this is a podcast for nerds, so nerd away. <laughs> Awesome. So I set out to try to find the most recent article I possibly could because I wanted to, you know, as we're getting towards the end here, I said, like, let's look at what, you know, what we can find for new articles. It's not brand new, but it's from 2017. Okay, that seems new to me. Yeah. So this is from the Journal of European Periodical Studies, which is a thing that exists. So they study periodicals in general? Uh, yeah, um, and, and it's not the European Journal of Periodical Studies, so I assume they primarily study European periodicals, but this is about an American periodical? Whatever, I'm okay with it. 
Um, it is an open access journal, but we found it, um, it's discoverable through C-Search, our discovery layer. So um, when I searched for articles about Lord Jim and I sorted those by newest first, um, it came right up in there and I was able to link to it from our database. Um, so it's by Stephen Donovan and it's called The American Serialization of Lord Jim. And the, the description of this article just hooked me instantly and I thought we absolutely need to go out on this one. So I'm going to just read that brief description if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay. This essay presents the discovery of the American serialization of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim in New York's Evening Telegram in 1903. This lost serialization, it argues, invites a new perspective on Conrad's early career by foregrounding the role of newspaper serialization and syndication in establishing his literary standing. After surveying the differences in reading experiences of the periodical versus the book, it concludes by proposing that the prominence of women among Conrad's first audiences requires us to reassess the basis for his success in North America and elsewhere. Oh, wow, that gets into a lot of things. I know that was a lot of words, but like there's so much here, Anne. And, um, you know, it, there's, there's so much going on. And I think that like it's very American of me to be like, yes, I want to talk about the article that's about America. Uh, but it's fascinating. Um, you know, we've, we started off talking about Blackwoods and where the story was, you know, where the novel was originally published. Mm -hmm. And that was a serialized format. But this is, um, you know, first of all, the idea that a, a serialization could be lost. Um, you know, I, I just love that as a concept, but we're talking about a daily newspaper that cost a penny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and it was incorporated into a newspaper that you'd be buying for any number of reasons. So it would kind of lower that barrier to access to, you know, select a book on the shelf to purchase. And, you know, it could have ended up with fish wrapped up in it the next day. You know, you're not saving this. Like, so the idea that scholars would, you know, take a really long time to realize that, oh, this is a thing. Like, we literally only recently became aware that it had been published in this format. Yeah, so, it's such an ephemeral method of publishing. Very much. And we knew that it already had been, you know, before it was published in Evening Telegram, it had already been published in book format in the United States. So people were, you know, potentially very aware. But that's one of the things I love about this article is that Donovan talks about the fact that they're advertising this serialization kind of in a way that says like, you know, you probably should have read something by Joseph Conrad. Why not read this? <laughs> and, you know, kind of appealing to the people that like, yeah, I really should, like, I think I feel like this a lot of the time, like I should be reading more capital L literature. Mm -hmm. But presenting it in a really, you know, easily digestible format, um, you know, and it kind of starts off by talking about the fact that we've really come to think of Conrad as this writer's writer who creates this art and this super serious literature, which to me implies something that the average person might not find to be really accessible. Mm -hmm. But you know, Donovan's reminding us that, like, that's, that's really not how he was received in his time. He's hugely, hugely popular. He's read by tons of people. And um, he actually references the Mary Burgoyne article we talked about a few weeks back about the publication during wartime. 
Right. And how important that was for spreading it among soldiers and sailors. Yeah. And like literally thousands and thousands of copies. And this is another example of how, you know, like it's a newspaper. It's a penny. The average person is going to be very able to just pick this up. And, you know, it does give them a reason to keep buying that paper every day if they like get into the story. So, you know, the average person um, is going to have a lot of opportunities to read Conrad, especially um, one fact I love from this article, during Conrad's lifetime, his work was serialized um, to, to an astonishing extent, is the phrase Donovan uses. And it's apparently there were over 200 separate serializations of his stories in over 100 periodicals just during his lifetime. Oh, yeah, that's impressive because I know he, he rose to a great deal more prominence after his death. Right. But it sounds like there was quite a lot of popular interest in him, but maybe not of the serious capital L literary kind, so it was a little more dismissed. I think he's almost got both, even then, because the marketing for this serialization is really interesting. Um, the author talks about how, you know, they appeal to this high mindedness where, you know, people like if you if you care about literature, you'll read this. Um, and it's it's just it's fascinating. Um, the way they describe it to sell it to their readers is, you know, a stirring story of sea adventure. Um, I actually he's got um, images of the advertisements for it included in the text here. Oh, that's a really good reason to look at the article, even if you're not reading it through. Yes. So they, um, they ran this in 1903 in May and June. And again, it was daily. Mm -hmm. um, they described it as, this is Joseph Conrad's latest novel, A Stirring Story of Sea Adventure. It deals with the career of a man animated by the highest purposes, by the most heroic impulses, who somehow at the critical moment was always found wanting. And, you know, it goes on to, to just say that um, Lord Jim is vastly different from other stories of the sea and of adventure. It is finer, more subtle, more knowingly observed, more poetically expressed. In fact, in its kind, nothing else in English literature can quite compare with this work of Conrad's. You know, I don't disagree. I think it's pretty incredible. And That's it goes wonderful. so far into the internal life that, you know, sea stories don't always do. Sure, sure. And yet, you know, there's, um, you know, this article also talks about the fact that, you know, this is, so this is a New York publication. Um, and he talks about New Yorkers being very attuned to things that were happening at sea and, you know, land-based, you know, readers still being very curious about maritime news. And he actually brings in a lot of examples of specific maritime news that was mentioned in the Evening Telegram during the run of Lord Jim in that publication. Um, so, you, yeah, you get a sense of like this kind of stories, like there's a liner that sinks because it was rammed in the fog off of Delaware. There's, you know, drownings. There's this one is about 23 people saved from a fishing bark. Um, mm -hmm. you know, this is news that was very much resonating. Um, there's an interest in the sea. Well, and, you know, that makes me feel very good also, as we've been doing our This Text and History series through our Facebook account, and kind of thinking about what was happening in the world as it was being published in Blackwood's magazine, that uh, Donovan here is doing kind of the same thing, but kind of within the publication as it occurred, which is just fascinating. 
Right. Right. I, I just love it. I love this article. And um, again, as I mentioned in that, you know, reading that description, there is a long discussion here about the appeal to women, because I do think we also get this sense of Conrad as kind of like, you know, these are stories men would like. And yeah, he's kind of like an early Hemingway that way, you know, very manly, very adventure focused. And we kind of assume that it's therefore, you know, something that men read. Right. And this is just flipping that and giving us these examples of, you know, there are women, lots of women who would have found this appealing and would have been reading this. So I love it. Because of where it was occurring, that maybe this was a publication they were already reading? Uh, Partly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, and, and the accessibility factor and yeah, it's just, I, I love this article. Um, there's, there's so much here and it's a very, very readable, you know, that's the other thing that, you know, in general, if you as a listener have found some of the articles that we've been talking about to be like just a little bit too much in terms of the academic language, um, this one's, it's so readable. It's so accessible. Um, I really, I just really enjoyed reading this. That's great. And I think last week I highlighted that as an article that you might dive into, um, but that certainly was one of those really dense academic articles. So I'll highlight this one too for a really kind of different reason, different experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just, just so many interesting facts. If you, you know, if you're interested in the novel, if you're interested in what people were, you know, how people were reading it here. Um, I just really enjoyed it. Well, and you know, to kind of close this up, I love thinking about books and texts and the way that they travel through time, because this is the same text that they were reading, that we're reading, they were reading it serialized, we're listening to it serialized. Um, You know, how different our worlds how same the text, those interacting differently for those readers and our readers and our listeners now. And it's, you know, I, I love that arc over history and seeing both those similarities and differences and recognizing those readers as us too. Um, I just love that. So thank you so much for bringing this. Thank you, Anne. I absolutely agree with your take on that. And, and that's the thing is that like, there are still people today that, you know, will say, well, like listening, does listening really count as reading a book? And, you know, what they were saying in 1903 is, you know, it counts if you read it in the newspaper, it's still great literature. And I think today we're saying, you know, yes, absolutely. It counts if you listen to it as a podcast. It's, you know, it, it holds up. It's still got something for us. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if the words are doing something for you, then I'm not going to split hairs about how you're getting those words. Absolutely. Well, and thank you so much for bringing us now a total of 13 fascinating, interesting articles and eBooks and discussions about the text and about Conrad and about maritime literature. This has just been a huge amount of fun for me. And as we start to wind up our reading with only one more uh, leg of the journey left. Um, I really appreciate that work. And I look forward to talking to you next week for our little uh, different segment. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And I, I thank you for the opportunity.
And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 39 All the events of that night have a great importance, since they brought about a situation which remained unchanged till Jim's return. Jim had been away in the interior for more than a week, and it was Dane Juarez who had directed the first repulse. That brave and intelligent youth, who knew how to fight after the manner of white men, wished to settle the business offhand, but his people were too much for him. He had not Jim's racial prestige and the reputation of invincible supernatural power. He was not the visible, tangible incarnation of unfailing truth and of unfailing victory. Beloved, trusted, and admired as he was, he was still one of them, while Jim was one of us. Moreover, the white man, a tower of strength in himself, was invulnerable, while Dane Juarez could be killed. Those unexpressed thoughts guided the opinions of the chief men of the town, who elected to assemble in Jim's fort for deliberation upon the emergency, as if expecting to find wisdom and courage in the dwelling of the absent white man. The shooting of Brown's ruffians was so far good, or lucky, that there had been half a dozen casualties amongst the defenders. The wounded were lying on the veranda tended by their women folk. The women and children from the lower part of the town had been sent into the fort at the first alarm. There, Jewel was in command, very efficient and high-spirited, obeyed by Jim's own people, who, quitting in a body of their little settlement under the stockade, had gone in to form the garrison. The refugees crowded round her, and through the whole affair, to the very disastrous last, she showed an extraordinary martial ardor. It was to her Dane Juarez had gone at first intelligence of danger, for you must know that Jim was the only one in Patizan who possessed a store of gunpowder. Stein, with whom he had kept up intimate relations by letters, had obtained from the Dutch government a special authorization to export 500 kegs of it to Patizan. The powder magazine was a small hut of rough logs covered entirely with earth, and in Jim's absence the girl had the key. In the council, held at eleven o'clock in the evening in Jim's dining room, she backed up Warris's advice for immediate and vigorous action. I am told that she stood up by the side of Jim's empty chair at the head of the long table and made a warlike, impassioned speech, which for the moment extorted murmurs of approbation from the assembled headmen. Old Doriman, who had not showed himself outside his own gate for more than a year, had been brought across with great difficulty. He was, of course, the chief man there. The temper of the council was very unforgiving, and the old man's word would have been decisive, but it is my opinion that, well aware of his son's fiery courage, he dared not pronounce the word. More dilatory counsels prevailed. A certain Haji Saman pointed out at great length that these tyrannical and ferocious men had delivered themselves to a certain death in any case. They would stand fast on their hill and starve, or they would try to regain their boat and be shot from ambushes across the creek, or they would break and fly into the forest and perish singly there. He argued that by the use of proper stratagems these evil-minded strangers could be destroyed without the risk of a battle, and his words had a great weight, especially with the Patterson men proper. What unsettled the minds of the townsfolk was the failure of the Raja's boats to act at the decisive moment. It was the diplomatic Kasim who represented the Raja of the council. He spoke very little, listened smilingly, very friendly and impenetrable. During the sitting, messengers kept arriving every few minutes almost with reports of the invaders' proceedings. Wild and exaggerated rumors were flying. 
There was a large ship at the mouth of the river with big guns and many more men, some white, others with black skins and of bloodthirsty appearance. They were coming with many more boats to exterminate every living thing. A sense of near, incomprehensible danger affected the common people. At one moment there was a panic in the courtyard amongst the women, shrieking, a rush, children crying, Haji Sinan went out to quiet them. Then a fort sentry fired at something moving on the river and nearly killed a villager bringing in his women folk in a canoe together with the best of his diplomatic utensils and a dozen fowls. This caused more confusion. Meantime, the palaver inside Jim's house went on in the presence of the girl. Doraman sat fierce-faced, heavy, looking at the speakers in turn, and breathing slow like a bull. He didn't speak till the last, after Kasim had declared that the Raja's boats would be called in because the men were required to defend his master's stockade. Dane Waris in his father's presence would offer no opinion, though the girl entreated him in Jim's name to speak out. She offered him Jim's own men in her anxiety to have these intruders driven out at once. He only shook his head, after a glance or two at Doraman. Finally, when the council broke up, it had been decided that the houses nearest the creek should be strongly occupied to obtain the command of the enemy's boat. The boat itself was not to be interfered with openly, so that the robbers on the hill should be tempted to embark, when a well-directed fire would kill most of them, no doubt. To cut off the escape of those who might survive, and to prevent more of them coming up, Dane Waris was ordered by Doraman to take an armed party of budges down the river to a certain spot ten miles below Patizan, and there form a camp on the shore and blockade the stream with the canoes. I don't believe for a moment that Doraman feared the arrival of fresh forces. My opinion is that his conduct was guided solely by his wish to keep his son out of harm's way. To prevent a rush being made into the town, the construction of a stockade was to be commenced at daylight at the end of the street on the left bank. The old Nakoda declared his intention to command there himself. A distribution of powder, bullets, and percussion caps was made immediately under the girl's supervision. Several messengers were to be dispatched in different directions after Jim, whose exact whereabouts were unknown. These men started at dawn, but before that time Kasim had managed to open communications with the besieged Brown. That accomplished diplomatist and confidant of the Raja, on leaving the fort to go back to his master, took into his boat Cornelius, whom he found slinking mutely amongst the people in the courtyard. Kasim had a little plan of his own and wanted him for an interpreter. Thus it came about that towards morning Brown, reflecting upon the desperate nature of his position, heard from the marshy overgrown hollow an amicable, quavering, strained voice, crying, in English, for permission to come up, under a promise of personal safety and on a very important errand. He was overjoyed. If he was spoken to, he was no longer a hunted wild beast. These friendly sounds took off at once the awful stress of vigilant watchfulness, as of so many blind men not knowing whence the death blow might come. He pretended a great reluctance. The voice declared itself, a white man, a poor, ruined old man who had been living here for years. A mist, wet and chilly, lay on the slopes of the hill, and after some more shouting from one to the other, Brown called out, Come on, then, but alone, mind. As a matter of fact, he told me, writhing with rage at the recollection of his helplessness, it made no difference. They couldn't see more than a few yards before them, and no treachery could make their position worse. By and by, Cornelius, in his weekday attire of a ragged, dirty shirt and pants, barefooted with a broken-rimmed pith hat on his head, 
was made out vaguely, sidling up to the defenses, hesitating, stopping to listen in a peering posture. Come along, you are safe, called Brown, while his men stared. All their hopes of life became suddenly centered in that dilapidated, mean newcomer, who in profound silence clambered clumsily over a felled tree trunk, and shivering with his sour, mistrustful face, looked about at the knot of bearded, anxious, sleepless desperados. Half an hour's confidential talk with Cornelius opened Brown's eyes as to the home affairs of Patizan. He was on the alert at once. There were possibilities, immense possibilities, but before he would talk over Cornelius's proposal, he demanded that some food should be sent up as a guarantee of good faith. Cornelius went off, creeping sluggishly down the hill on the side of the Rajah's palace, and after some delay, a few of Tunku Along's men came up, bringing a scanty supply of rice, chilies, and dried fish. This was immeasurably better than nothing. Later on, Cornelius returned, accompanying Kasim, who stepped out with an air of perfect, good-humored trustfulness, in sandals and muffled up from the neck to ankles in dark blue sheeting. He shook hands with Brown discreetly, and the three drew aside for a conference. Brown's men, recovering their confidence, were slapping each other on the back and cast knowing glances at their captain while they busied themselves with preparations for cooking. Kasim disliked Doraman and his budges very much, but he hated the new order of things still more. It had occurred to him that these whites, together with the Raja's followers, could attack and defeat the budges before Jim's return. Then, he reasoned, general defection of the townsfolk was sure to follow, and the reign of the white man who protected poor people would be over. Afterwards, the new allies could be dealt with. They would have no friends. The fellow was perfectly able to perceive the difference of character, and had seen enough of white men to know that these newcomers were outcasts, men without country. Brown preserved a stern and inscrutable demeanor. When he first heard Cornelius's voice demanding admittance, it brought merely the hope of a loophole for escape. In less than an hour, other thoughts were seething in his head. Urged by an extreme necessity, he had come there to steal food, a few tons of rubber or gum, maybe, perhaps a handful of dollars, and had found himself enmeshed by deadly dangers. Now, in consequence of these overtures from Kasim, he began to think of stealing the whole country. Some confounded fellow had apparently accomplished something of the kind, single-handed at that. Couldn't have done it very well, though. Perhaps they could work together, squeeze everything dry, and then go out quietly. In the course of his negotiations with Kasim, he became aware that he was supposed to have a big ship with plenty of men outside. Kasim begged him earnestly to have this big ship with his many guns and men brought up the river without delay for the Raja's service. Brown professed himself willing, and on this basis the negotiation was carried on with mutual distrust. Three times in the course of the morning, the courteous and active Kasim went down to consult the Raja and came up busily with his long stride. Brown, while bargaining, had a sort of grim enjoyment in thinking of his wretched schooner, with nothing but a heap of dirt in her hold that stood for an armed ship, and a Chinaman with a lame ex-beachcomber of Levuka on board, who represented all his many men. In the afternoon, he obtained further doles of food, a promise of some money, and a supply of mats for his own men to make shelters for themselves. They lay down and snored, protected from the burning sunshine, but Brown, sitting fully exposed on one of the felled trees, feasted his eyes upon the view of the town and the river. There was much to loot here. Cornelius, who had made himself at home in the camp, talked at his elbow, 
pointing out the localities, imparting advice, giving his own version of Jim's character, and commenting in his own fashion upon the events of the last three years. Brown, who, apparently indifferent and gazing away, listened with attention to every word, could not make out clearly what sort of man this Jim could be. What's his name? Jim. Jim, that's not enough for a man's name. They call him, said Tornelius scornfully, Tuin Jim here, as you may say, Lord Jim. What is he? Where does he come from? inquired Brown. What sort of man is he? Is he an Englishman? Yes, yes, he's an Englishman. I'm an Englishman too, from Malacca. He is a fool. All you have to do is to kill him, and then you are king here. Everything belongs to him, explained Cornelius. It strikes me he may be made to share with somebody before very long, commented Brown half aloud. No, no. The proper way is to kill him the first chance you get, and then you can do what you like. Cornelius would insist earnestly. I have lived for many years here, and I am giving you a friend's advice. In such converse and in gloating over the view of Patisan, which he had determined in his mind should become his prey, Brown whiled away most of the afternoon, his men meantime resting. On that day Dane Warris's fleet of canoes stole one by one under the shore farthest from the creek, and went down to close the river against his retreat. Of this Brown was not aware, and Cassim, who came up the knoll an hour before sunset, took good care not to enlighten him. He wanted the white man's ship to come up the river, and this news, he feared, would be discouraging. He was very pressing with Brown to send the order, offering at the same time a trusty messenger, who for greater secrecy, as he explained, would make his way by land to the mouth of the river and deliver the order on board. After some reflection, Brown judged it expedient to tear a page out of his pocketbook, on which he simply wrote, We are getting on. Big job. Detain the man. The stolid youth selected by Cassim for that service performed it faithfully, and was rewarded by being suddenly tipped, head first, into the schooner's empty hold by the ex-beachcomber and the Chinaman, who thereupon hastened to put on the hatches. What became of him afterwards, Brown did not say. Chapter 40 Brown's object was to gain time by fooling with Cassim's diplomacy, for doing a real stroke of business he could not help thinking the white man was the person to work with. He could not imagine that such a chap, who must be confoundedly clever after all to get hold of the natives like that, refusing a help that would do away with the necessity for slow, cautious, risky cheating that imposed itself as the only possible line of conduct for a single-handed man. He, Brown, would offer him the power. No man could hesitate. Everything was in coming to a clear understanding. Of course they would share. The idea of there being a fort, all ready to his hand, a real fort with artillery, he knew this from Cornelius, excited him. Let him only once get in, and he would impose modest conditions. Not too low, though. The man was no fool, it seemed. They would work like brothers till, till the time came for a quarrel and a shot that would settle all accounts. With grim impatience of plunder, he wished himself to be talking with the man now. The land already seemed to be his to tear to pieces, squeeze, and throw away. Meantime, Cassim had to be fooled for the sake of food first, and for a second string. But the principal thing was to get something to eat from day to day. Besides, he was not averse to begin fighting on that Raja's account, and teach a lesson to those people who had received him with shots. The lust of battle was upon him. 
I am sorry that I can't give you this part of the story, which of course I have mainly from Brown, in Brown's own words. There was in the broken, violent speech of that man, unveiling before me his thoughts with the very hand of death upon his throat, an undisguised ruthlessness of purpose, a strange, vengeful attitude towards his own past, and a blind belief in the righteousness of his will against all mankind, something of that feeling which could induce the leader of a horde of wandering cutthroats to call himself proudly the scourge of God. No doubt the natural senseless ferocity which is the basis of such a character was exasperated by failure, ill luck, and the recent privations, as well as by the desperate position in which he found himself. But what was most remarkable of all was this, that while he planned treacherous alliances, had already settled in his own mind the fate of the white man, and intrigued in an overbearing offhand manner with Cassim one could perceive that what he had really desired, almost in spite of himself, was to play havoc with that jungle town which had defied him, to see it strewn over with corpses and enveloped in flames. Listening to his pitiless, panting voice, I could imagine how he must have looked at it from the hillock, peopling it with images of murder and rapin. The part nearest to the creek wore an abandoned aspect, though, as a matter of fact, every house concealed a few armed men on the alert. Suddenly, beyond the stretch of waste ground, interspersed with small patches of low, dense bush, excavations, heaps of rubbish with trodden paths between, a man, solitary and looking very small, strolled out into the deserted opening of the street between the shut-up, dark, lifeless buildings and the end. Perhaps one of the inhabitants, who had fled to the other bank of the river, coming back for some object of domestic use. Evidently, he supposed himself quite safe at that distance from the hill on the other side of the creek. A light stockade, set up hastily, was just round the turn of the street, full of his friends. He moved leisurely. Brown saw him, and instantly called to his side the Yankee deserter, who acted as a sort of second-in-command. This lanky, loose-jointed fellow came forward, wooden-faced, trailing his rifle lazily. When he understood what was wanted from him, a homicidal and conceited smile uncovered his teeth, making two deep folds down his sallow, leathery cheeks. He prided himself on being a dead shot. He dropped on one knee, and taking aim from a steady rest through the unlopped branches of a felled tree, fired, and at once stood up to look. The man, far away, turned his head to the report, made another step forward, seemed to hesitate, and abruptly got down on his hands and knees. In the silence that fell upon the sharp crack of the rifle, the dead shot, keeping his eyes fixed upon the quarry, guessed that this there coon's health would never be a source of anxiety to his friends any more. The man's limbs were seen to move rapidly under his body in an endeavor to run on all fours. In that empty space arose a multitudinous shout of dismay and surprise. The man sank flat, face down, and moved no more. That showed them what we could do, said Brown to me, struck the fear of sudden death into them. That was what we wanted. They were two hundred to one, and this gave them something to think over for that night. Not one of them had an idea of such a long shot before. That beggar belonging to the Rajah scooted downhill with his eyes hanging out of his head. As he was telling me this, he tried with a shaking hand to wipe the thin foam on his blue lips. Two hundred to one. Two hundred to one, strike terror, 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 I tell you. His own eyes were starting out of their sockets. He fell back, clawing the air with skinny fingers, sat up again, bowed and hairy, 
glared at me sideways like some man-beast of folklore, with open mouth in his miserable and awful agony before he got his speech back after that fit. There are sights one never forgets. Furthermore, to draw the enemy's fire and locate such parties as might have been hiding in the bushes along the creek, Brown ordered the Solomon Islander to go down to the boat and bring an oar, as you send a spaniel after a stick into the water. This failed, and the fellow came back without a single shot having been fired at him from anywhere. "'There's nobody,' opined some of the men. "'It's unnatural,' remarked the Yankee. Kasim had gone by that time, very much impressed, pleased too, and also uneasy.' Pursuing his tortuous policy, he had dispatched a message to Dane Warris, warning him to look out for the white men's ship, which, he had had information, was about to come up the river. He minimized its strength and exhorted him to oppose its passage. This double dealing answered his purpose, which was to keep the Budge's forces divided and to weaken them by fighting. On the other hand, he had in the course of that day sent word to the assembled Budge's chiefs in town, assuring them that he was trying to induce the invaders to retire. His messages to the fort asked earnestly for powder for the Rajah's men. It was a long time since Tunkulalong had had ammunition for the score or so of old muskets resting in their arm racks in the audience hall. The open intercourse between the hill and the palace unsettled all the minds. It was already time for men to take sides, it began to be said. There would soon be much bloodshed, and thereafter great trouble for many people. The social fabric of orderly, peaceful life, when every man was sure of tomorrow, the edifice raised by Jim's hands, seemed on that evening ready to collapse into a ruin reeking with blood. The poorer folk were already taking to the bush or flying up the river. A good many of the upper class judged it necessary to go and pay their court to the Raja. The Raja's youths jostled them rudely, Old Tunku along, almost out of his mind with fear and indecision, either kept a sullen silence or abused them violently for daring to come with empty hands. They departed very much frightened. Only old Doraman kept his countrymen together and pursued his tactics inflexibly. Enthroned in a big chair behind the improvised stockade, he issued his orders in a deep, veiled rumble, unmoved like a deaf man in the flying rumors. Dusk fell, hiding first the body of the dead man, which had been left lying with arms outstretched as if nailed to the ground, and then the revolving sphere of the night rolled smoothly over Patizan and came to a rest, showering the glitter of countless worlds upon the earth. Again, in the exposed part of the town, big fires blazed along the only street, revealing from distance to distance upon their glares the falling straight lines of roofs, the fragments of wattled walls jumbled in confusion, here and there a whole hut elevated in the glow upon the vertical black stripes of a group of high piles, and all this line of dwellings, revealed in patches by the swaying flames, seemed to flicker tortuously away upriver into the gloom at the heart of the land. A great silence, in which the looms of successive fires played without noise, extended into the darkness at the foot of the hill, but the other bank of the river, all dark save for a solitary bonfire at the river front before the fort, sent out into the air an increasing tremor that might have been the stamping of a multitude of feet, the hum of many voices, or the fall of an immensely distant waterfall. It was then, Brown confessed to me, while turning his back on his men, he sat looking at it all, notwithstanding his disdain, his ruthless faith in himself, a feeling came over him that at last he had run his head against a stone wall. 
Had his boat been afloat at the time, he believed he would have tried to steal away, taking his chances of a long chase down the river and of starvation at sea. It is very doubtful whether he would have succeeded in getting away. However, he didn't try this. For another moment he had a passing thought of trying to rush the town, but he perceived very well that in the end he would find himself in the lighted street, where they would be shot down like dogs from the houses. They were two hundred to one. He thought, while his men, huddling round two heaps of smoldering embers, munched the last of the bananas and roasted the few yams they owed to Cassim's diplomacy. Cornelius sat amongst them, dozing sulkily. Then one of the whites remembered that some tobacco had been left in the boat, and encouraged by the impunity of the Solomon Islander, said he would go to fetch it. At this all the others shook off their despondency. Brown applied to, said, "'Go and be damned to you,' scornfully. He didn't think there was any danger in going to the creek in the dark. The man threw a leg over the tree trunk and disappeared. A moment later he was heard clambering into the boat, and then clambering out. "'I've got it!' he cried. A flash and a report at the very foot of the hill followed. "'I am hit!' yelled the man. "'Look out! Look out! I am hit!' And instantly all the rifles went off. The hill squirted fire and noise into the night like a little volcano, and when Brown and the Yankee with curses and cuffs stopped the panic-stricken firing, a profound, weary groan floated up from the creek, succeeded by a plaint whose heart-rending sadness was like some poison turning the blood cold in the veins. Then a strong voice pronounced several distinct, incomprehensible words somewhere beyond the creek. "'Let no one fire!' shouted Brown. "'What does it mean? Do you hear on the hill? Do you hear? Do you hear?' repeated the voice three times. Cornelius translated, and then prompted the answer. "'Speak!' cried Brown. "'We hear!' Then the voice, declaiming in the sonorous inflated tone of a herald, and shifting continually on the edge of the vague wasteland, proclaimed that between the men of the Budges nation living in Patasan and the white men on the hill and those with them, there would be no faith, no compassion, no speech, no peace. A bush rustled. A haphazard volley rang out. Damn foolishness, muttered the Yankee, vexedly grounding the butt. Cornelius translated. The wounded man below the hill, after crying out twice, "'Take me up! Take me up!' went on complaining in moans. While he had kept on the blackened earth of the slope, and afterwards crouching in the boat, he had been safe enough. It seems that in his joy at finding the tobacco he forgot himself, and jumped out on her offside, as it were. The white boat, lying high and dry, showed him up. The creek was no more than seven yards wide in that place, and there happened to be a man crouching in the bush on the other bank. He was a budges of Tondano, only lately come to Patasan, and a relation of the man shot in the afternoon. That famous long shot had indeed appalled the beholders. The man in utter security had been struck down, in full view of his friends, dropping with a joke on his lips, and they seemed to see in the act an atrocity which had stirred a bitter rage. That relation of his, Salapa by name, was then with Doraman in the stockade only a few feet away. You who know these chaps must admit that the fellow showed an unusual pluck by volunteering to carry the message, alone, in the dark. Creeping across the open ground, he had deviated to the left and found himself opposite the boat. He was startled when Brown's man shouted. He came to a sitting position with his gun to his shoulder, 
and when the other jumped out, exposing himself, he pulled the trigger and lodged three jagged slugs point-blank into the poor wretch's stomach. Then, lying flat on his face, he gave himself up for dead, while a thin hail of lead chopped and swished in the bushes close on his right hand. Afterwards he delivered his speech shouting, bent double, dodging all the time in cover. With the last word he leaped sideways, lay close for a while, and afterwards got back to the houses unharmed, having achieved on that night such a renown as his children will not willingly allow to die. And on the hill the forlorn band let two little heaps of embers go out under their bowed heads. They sat dejected on the ground with compressed lips and downcast eyes, listening to their comrade below. He was a strong man, and died hard, with moans now loud, now sinking to a strange confidential note of pain. Sometimes he shrieked, and again, after a period of silence, he could be heard muttering deliriously a long and unintelligible complaint. Never for a moment did he cease. "'What's the good?' Brown had said unmoved once, seeing the Yankee who had been swearing under his breath prepare to go down. "'That's so,' assented the deserter, reluctantly desisting. "'There's no encouragement for wounded men here. "'Only his noise is calculated to make all the others think too much of the hereafter, Cap'n. "'Water!' cried the wounded man in an extraordinarily clear, vigorous voice, "'and then went off moaning feebly. "'Aye, water, water will do it,' muttered the other to himself resignedly. "'Plenty by and by. The tide is flowing.' "'At last the tide flowed.' silencing the plaint and the cries of pain, and the dawn was near when Brown, sitting with his chin in the palm of his hand before Patizan, as one might stare at the unscalable side of a mountain, heard the brief ringing bark of a brass six-pounder far away in town somewhere. "'What's this?' he asked Cornelius, who hung about him. Cornelius listened. A muffled, roaring shout rolled down river over the town. A big drum began to throb, and others responded, pulsating and droning. Tiny scattered lights began to twinkle in the dark half of the town, while the part lighted by the loom of fires hummed with a deep and prolonged murmur. "'He has come,' said Cornelius. "'What, already? Are you sure?' Brown asked. "'Yes, yes, sure. Listen to the noise.' "'What are they making that row about?' pursued Brown. "'For joy,' snorted Cornelius. He is a very great man, but all the same he knows no more than a child, and so they make a great noise to please him, because they know no better. "'Look here,' said Brown. "'How is one to get at him?' "'He shall come to talk to you,' Cornelius declared. "'What do you mean? Come down here strolling, as it were?' Cornelius nodded vigorously in the dark. "'Yes, he will come straight here and talk to you. He is just like a fool. You shall see what a fool he is.' Brown was incredulous. "'You shall see, you shall see,' repeated Cornelius. "'He is not afraid, not afraid of anything. He will come and order you to leave his people alone. Everybody must leave his people alone. He is like a little child. He will come to you straight.' Alas, he knew Jim well. That mean little skunk, as Brown called him to me. "'Yes, certainly,' he pursued with ardor. "'And then, Captain, you tell that man with a gun to shoot him. Just you kill him, and you will frighten everybody so much that you can do anything you like with them afterwards. Get what you like, go away when you like. Ha, ha, ha. Fine. He almost danced with impatience and eagerness, and Brown, looking over his shoulder at him, 
could see, shown up by the pitiless dawn, his men drenched with dew, sitting amongst the cold ashes and the litter of the camp, haggard, cowed, and in rags. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.